You know, this week I was reading an article about a young man named Ivan. Ivan was a soldier in the army of the former USSR, a young man who was passionate for Jesus, eager to see his fellow soldiers come to know Christ. And as he was following Jesus and being bold about his faith in Christ, persecution within the ranks began to rise up against him. Ivan began facing interrogations that were very intense. Eventually, his superiors commanded him to head to headquarters where he would stand before Major Denko and give an account. This major told him, you must stop talking about Jesus or there will be consequences. Ivan had a decision to make, and he says, I can't change who I am. I'm a follower of Jesus, and I've got to talk about him. He was then commanded by the major to do the following. He is to stay up all night outside in his summer uniform in negative 13-degree weather. There he would stand his post all night. So that night, 10 o'clock, the horn sounded, off to bed, everyone went except for him. And there he stood outside of his barracks in his summer uniform in negative 13 degree weather. And it is there that he redeemed the time. He prayed, he sang psalms and hymns. He began to be approached by other soldiers who were in their full winter coats and they're shivering. And yet all of a sudden he realized, I'm not really that cold. God was giving him warmth. He would tell the story about how God was near and precious to him in those days. As the soldiers would mock him, what happened was days and days of him doing this, he had to keep doing it over and over again. One by one, fellow soldiers started coming to faith in Christ. They started seeing his boldness for the Lord. You see, it took one man who was bold for the Lord Jesus Christ, and it shook the USS army. When we get to Acts chapter 4, we come across two men who are bold for the Lord Jesus Christ, and it shakes the very foundations of the world. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 4. We're walking through the book of Acts together as a faith family. I absolutely adore this book. I've wanted to preach through it for the longest of times because there is so much richness. This is our history. This is how the church began. This is what the Lord did through the early church, that after Jesus died, rose again, and ascended back up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. We see in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls at Pentecost. Simon Peter stands up, preaches the gospel. 3,000 people come to faith in Christ, and the church is born. We get to Acts chapter 3, we see the first miracle take place where John and Peter are headed into the temple for prayer time and outside is a lame beggar who's been sitting there for the longest of years. He's begging for money. John and Peter say, look at me. The man looks up at these two disciples expecting a financial handout and Peter says, gold and silver I have not, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Immediately, the man stands to his feet and he is healed. They go into the temple complex and this man is jumping and leaping and praising God. 
because of what has just happened in his life. He's able to start walking. He's able to begin living his life. Well, the huge crowd gathers around John and Peter and this man who's holding on to them. And he is just shouting because of what God has just done in his life. And the question becomes, how did this happen? So Peter steps up again in Acts 3, preaches the gospel. You get to the very beginning of Acts chapter 4, and you see where thousands more come to faith in Christ. But we also see where persecution begins. Peter and John are then arrested by the temple complex soldiers because they were preaching the resurrection. The next day, they stood before the Sanhedrin, the high court of Judaism. These 70 members of this council who gathers and they interrogate those who do things like what these men have just done. How did this miracle take place? Simon Peter seizes this moment again where he is preaching before these 70 elders plus the high priest and they have the authority to not only persecute and imprison but also to kill them. And this, co this court is now faced with a decision. What in the world are we going to do? There is proof, there is evidence that this man has been healed right here on our complex and they're saying that we're responsible for the death of Jesus who is the one who healed this man. And Simon Peter, he spikes the football in this sermon in chapter four, verse 12, in which he says, I thought I had it memorized. There it is. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Then we get to Acts chapter four, verse 13. This is where we pick up and the scripture says this. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. After they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves saying, what should we do with these men? For an obvious sign has been done through them, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in, the name, in this name again. So they called for them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard." After threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. For this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. After they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of your father, David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. 
When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. The truth that we see in Scripture under the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is that every believer who puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ receives the Holy Spirit. The moment you believe the gospel, whether you were six years old at vacation Bible school, 16 years old at summer camp, 88 years old, and you hear the gospel through the radio, whenever, however it was that you believed the gospel, the Spirit came and took up residence in your life. That indeed Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13, you have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. And yet, though the Holy Spirit lives and abides within you forever, there is a sense in which, as we say the scriptures, that the more a Christ follower yields and submits to the Spirit, they are then empowered to serve the Lord with great boldness. You see, boldness is a mark of a believer who's full of the Spirit. So this morning, I want you to notice in the text how the Holy Spirit emboldens Christ followers and what this means for us. I want you to see first that boldness necessitates allegiance and obedience to Jesus regardless of consequence. Peter and John are standing before these religious leaders, and as the Sanhedrin is threatening them, these guys are not retreating. They're not backing down. Now, don't miss who these guys are. This is Peter and John. In fact, Jesus was the one who told them back in Matthew 26 that there's going to come a point in which his disciples would abandon him. As he was pointing forward to the suffering, he would endure. In fact, Jesus says, this very night, you all will fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And indeed, when Jesus was arrested, we see that the disciples fled. And even John Mark fled away naked. These guys got away from Jesus. And now, here are these guys, bold as a lion, standing before the Sanhedrin. The question is, what changed? How do they go from cowards who tuck tail and run to now standing before their accusers and not flinching? Well, two things. I think it's the resurrection. They knew the empty tomb. Peter and John had a foot race to get to the empty tomb. But you also got the Holy Spirit who is abiding and living and now filling these men as they are boldly proclaiming what God has done. So the Sanhedrin, seeing that these guys are not intimidated by them, they call a timeout. They go into a judicial recess to do damage control. They have to mitigate these apostles, minimize the harm that this could do to their reputation. You see, the proof of this man's healing is evident. He, he verse 14, is standing right there in front of them. Thousands of people have witnessed the healing. The whole city has heard about it. In verse 16, there's no denying it. And though this, the Sanhedrin could not deny the miracle, they refused to accept it. The hearts of these religious leaders was so hard that they didn't care about the truth. They wanted to protect their religious authority and position. They were living out what Jesus said in John three nineteen that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And so the Sanhedrin calls Peter and John back into the meeting and they order them, you cannot speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John respond, yeah, that's not gonna happen. 
whether it's right in the sight of God, verse 19, for us to listen to you or to God, you decide, for we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. There are going to be times in which your life, in your life, in which you are going to be tested in your allegiance to Jesus. There are going to be moments in which you're going to have to decide, am I going to be faithful to Jesus or am I going to go the way of the world? Faithfulness to Jesus necessitates your obedience to him is greater than any other allegiance you have here on the earth. Now, let's be clear here. We as followers of Jesus must be good citizens, We are those who submit to those in authority above us, particularly the government. This is what Paul says in Romans 13. He instructs the church, let everyone submit to the governing authorities since there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command. And those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the one in authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. Because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is God's servant, an avenger, that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Therefore, you must submit, not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. And for this reason, you pay taxes since the authorities are God's servants. Continually attending to these tasks, pay your obligations to everyone, taxes to those you owe taxes, tolls to those you owe tolls, respect to those you owe respect, and honor to those you owe honor. We are commanded in scripture to submit ourselves to those in authority above us. In fact, this same Simon Peter in Acts chapter 4 would later write in 1 Peter chapter 2, submit to every human authority. Why? Because of the Lord. Whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now, let's remember this. Peter and Paul write Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 under the authority of Caesar Nero, one of the worst dictators in history. Nero was a guy who set the city of Rome on fire and blamed the Christians. Thus, a huge persecution rose up against the church. This is the same Nero who would encapture and enslave believers. He would impale them, dip them in wax, set them on fire for his garden parties. And yet Paul and Peter are saying, we submit to those in authority above us. It honors God when we submit to those whom God has placed over us in government. And yet we must understand this for our context. As followers of Jesus, we are a people who gladly submit to those in authority above us. Our governors, our presidents, our mayors, 
This is what we do. Regardless of their political party, regardless of what they do, we are those who submit, okay? We know ultimately the reason why is because we want to honor the Lord. But we also have something else up our sleeve. We submit because we know there is someone higher. We know that every governor and president is ultimately submissive to the one who has put them there. Whether they are good or they are evil, God is the one who is sovereign over every dictator, king, president, governor, and mayor. Psalm twenty-two twenty-eight says, For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. And yet simultaneously, there will be times in which we cannot, indeed we must not, submit to those in authority over us. All right, Kenneth, it sounds like you're contradicting yourself. Hear me out on this. This is where Scripture presents to us tension. There's times in which we submit, and there's times in which we don't. We have to hold two truths that God gives us in his word and we hold them in tension. And so we have to navigate our lives in light of the tension that he presents in his word. You see, faithfulness necessitates allegiance and obedience to Jesus over unscriptural edicts from an earthly authority. Let's say it a different way. When a government demands its people to do something that violates scripture, we firmly and respectfully say, no, we will not obey. We have a higher authority. We have a kingdom that lasts longer than this temporary nation. We see this back in Daniel chapter six, in which he says, I'm gonna bow and I'm gonna pray regardless of consequence. We see this with Shipra and Pua in Exodus chapter one. Two midwives who were commanded by the king, the Pharaoh of Egypt, you will kill every baby boy born of, an, born of an Israelite, in which they said, no, we will not kill the baby boys. We are not going to do it. There will be times in which you may be pressured to do something that violates scripture. We as followers of Christ humbly, respectfully, and yet firmly say, no. We're going to honor the Lord. We are those who will ultimately answer to him. For Peter and John, it meant preaching the resurrection regardless of the Sanhedrin's threats. Now, for the early church, it was common that they were placed in this position. They would live in or under a Roman empire in which it was understood that a Roman Caesar was like a lowercase g, God. And you are to be a good citizen by worshiping that God. You would, you would uh, uh, light incense as an act of worship to Caesar. Well, the early church said, no, 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 no. There is someone higher than Caesar. There is a king that's greater than the king. There is a Lord greater than this Lord. In fact, Jesus is Lord. Those three words was high treason. Early church believers often suffered great persecution, imprisonment, and even death because they refused to bow their knee to Caesar because they knew there is a Lord and a King greater than Caesar, and his name is Jesus. Here are Peter and John 
put in a position in which the authority above them is telling them, you must stop preaching Jesus. You must stop teaching in his name. And what they are declaring is respectfully and firmly, no. We cannot help declaring what we have seen and heard, verse 20. So the question is this. When are we to submit to the government and when are we not? And here's the easy answer. Scripture. If the government ever asks someone to do something that violates Scripture, we respectfully and humbly say, no. I cannot obey your edict, your law, your command, because there's a higher law. There's a greater authority. There is one to whom I must give an account. Therefore, as followers of Jesus, we let the word of God govern and guide us to help us discern the tension of when we submit and when we don't. So hear me on this. If your boss asks you to do something that violates scripture, firmly and respectfully say, no, I must give an account before the Lord. If your husband demands you to do something that violates scripture, you firmly and respectfully say, no, I'm going to honor the Lord in all of my life. If your parent demands you to do something that violates scripture, you firmly and respectfully say, no, I must obey my heavenly father first. If your pastor ever says something to you that violates scripture, you respectfully say, no, I'm going to honor the Lord first. If you have a teacher or a coach or someone in authority above you and they demand you to do something that violates scripture, you firmly and respectfully say, no, Jesus is my king and I obey him first. You see, heavenly obedience will at times necessitate earthly disobedience. Faithfulness to Jesus means there are going to be times in which you're going to be regarded as a troublemaker. But it's a good trouble because we're honoring the Lord. When the demands of those in authority conflicts with Scripture, like in the Sanhedrin in verse 4, we say, man, we listen, we're going to obey God rather than man. As the Sanhedrin is demanding Peter and John to stop preaching the gospel, they respectfully and firmly say, verse 20, we're unable to stop. We can't help it. Jesus has defeated death. This has changed. This changes everything. They're full of the Spirit, and it's giving them a boldness before these guys. And as they're preaching the gospel, they're sitting there thinking, fine, we'll be considered disobedient in the eyes of Jewish law because we're going to obey what the Word of God says and not these man-made rules you've created. We can't help but declare what we know is true. But man, what about consequences? Kenneth, if I do what you say, it's going to cost me. I may not get the promotion. I may lose friendships. What am I going to do? If I don't do what the person in authority above me does, it creates conflict and division. What about believers who may potentially lose their lives for their civil disobedience? My answer to you is, who do you fear more? God or man? And in so many ways, Christian discipleship comes down to that question, does it not? Who do you fear more? 
God or man? Jesus tells us in Matthew 10, do not fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus gives us a very clear declaration that we are to fear the Lord and not man. You see, the believer's highest allegiance and obedience is to the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear me on this. Jesus is to be number one in your life, and there is no clear second place that's even close. That Jesus holds first place in your heart. And as much as you love your spouse and your kids and your job and your ball team, you understand Christ is preeminent. He is the one who holds first place in my life and he will remain there forever. One of the things that attracted me to my wife when we first started dating was her passion for Jesus. And so when the time came for me to propose to her, I wanted to make sure she said yes, so I did it in front of a big crowd of people. On a Wednesday night, I poured into this youth group, man, been teaching, and just, man, I love those students. And on a Wednesday night, I'm teaching on how Jesus washed his disciples' feet. And I brought my wife up on stage to kind of display and demonstrate, this is what it looks like to wash feet. And the whole thing, I'm just thinking, oh, you guys have no idea about what's about to happen, right? And I turned my attention towards her. And I said, Christy, Jesus is number one in your life. And I want to be number two. Will you marry me? She can't say no. <laughs> but I wanted to make sure that as we would begin our marriage, it would be Jesus first. And so when it comes to your marriage, make Jesus first. When it comes to your parenting, make Jesus first. When it comes to your relationship with your boss, make Jesus first. When it comes to how you relate to your coach or your teacher or even your pastor, Jesus comes first. When it comes to your relationship with the government, Jesus first. He is number one, and everything else is a far distant second place. Jesus, first place. That's the case for these disciples as they're standing before the Sanhedrin, unwilling to compromise or backpedal. They're standing firm on what they know is true. We are a people who are seeking the praise of God, not the praise of man. But then we get down to verse 22. Do you know what I love about verse 22? is that God can even use people who are over the age of 40. As someone who's just turned 40, I'm like, I love verse 22. But you know what's great about verse 22? The skeptics could not refute a changed life. This man's story could not be contradicted. He's standing there the scripture tells us he's more than 40. I love that. Meaning he's not a child who could be manipulated. This is not a circumstance that could be concocted. This is a grown man who for years, if not decades, has been sitting there as a lame beggar at the temple gates. And the evidence of his life that he's been changed is right there in front of them. Hear me. There may be people who are a lot smarter than you who can outsmart you. They can outargue you. They can outpersuade you. They cannot refute your life's been changed by Jesus. 
The evidence that the gospel is true in your life is the fact that you're not who you used to be. That you're growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And though you're not perfect, you're pursuing the perfection of Christ. And he is conforming you into the image of his son. God is making you more and more like Jesus every day. Though outwardly you are wasting away, inwardly you're being renewed day by day. The spirit of God is making you more and more like Christ if you are in Christ. And this man, as he stands before the Sanhedrin, they can argue all they want. They can point to all these man-made human traditions and laws all they want to. He can just say this, I used to be messed up and now Jesus has made me whole. I used to not be able to walk and now I'm dancing. I used to be a beggar, now I'm more than a conqueror. I have an inheritance in the kingdom that is to come. This man has been changed by Jesus and so have you. And no one can refute it. The Sanhedrin doesn't know what to do with this guy. They have no response for the change that's happened in this man's life. You see, boldness necessitates allegiance and obedience to Jesus, regardless of consequence. But I want you to see secondly here in the text, that boldness necessitates approaching and petitioning God with big prayers. I love how verse 23 starts. After they were released, they went to their own people. I, I love that. Once the apostles got, got out from underneath the interrogation of the Sanhedrin, they make a beeline to the church. They go to their friends. They go to their posse. They go to their people. They had to be with their people. When you go through hardship in life, this is why you need the church. When you go through persecution, difficulty, this is why your life group matters. That you're not just someone who, who, who attends on Sunday morning and you can be nameless and faceless. No, you need people in your life who are gonna be there with you when the hardship comes. That when the trial comes knocking on your door, you've got your people. That's what's happening here. These guys, they leave the Sanhedrin and they go straight to the church. And they begin to report what has just happened. And from that moment, this report that they give, it then leads to this incredible prayer time where the church just says, all right, let's take a knee and let's praise God for what he has done. And then what we see in verses 24 through 30 is just a beautiful outline of what prayer looks like. If you want to learn how to pray, study the scriptures. When you see prayer taking place in the word, start outlining, taking notes, seeing the order and why they're praying in certain ways. I put this in your notes, these, these three ways of how they pray here in chapter four. The first thing is they praise God for his character. We see it there in verse 24. They're praising God for his character. They're honoring him as the creator of all things. You made the earth, you made the sea, you made the skies and everything in them. God, you made it all. They're beginning with his character. They're celebrating God for what he has done. And when I say to you, when you begin your prayer time, begin not by saying, God, I want, but God, I celebrate who you are. And that becomes a foundation for your prayer time to say, I'm talking to the one who made the cosmos. And it increases your faith as you know that you're speaking to the one who's able to answer your request. That he is not weak or impotent. When you begin with the character of God, it undergirds the foundations of your prayers to celebrate for who he is. Something I've tried to incorporate into my prayer times, even before a meal, 
before I pray, I want to pray the character of God. And it can be just a few sentences or phrases, but it's a reminder to me that, okay, this is who I'm talking to. This is who I'm thanking for what he's provided, okay? So here they are beginning with the character of God. But then secondly, notice in the text, they pray the word. They pray the word. Notice they're praying Psalm 2. They're praying the word of God back to the Lord. The Psalms is a prayer book. It's 150 of these songs, poems, prayers that you get to bring before the Lord. Here they're praying Psalm 2. And if you've never read Psalm 2, I'm going to encourage you to go read it this afternoon because it is so good. Oh, uh, I'll get there in just a moment. But man, there's just these parts of that Psalm. I just... I chuckle when I read it. So they, they start talking about the, that the, uh, the kings of the earth. Come on, Bruce. Psalm 2. The, come on. It's there. Uh, David, full of the Holy Spirit, wrote Psalm 2. Kings and rulers, they conspire. There's a word I couldn't think of. They conspire against the Lord and against his anointed. Okay, so David, 800 years before Jesus even came, He's talking about these kings, these rulers who are going to rise up against the Messiah, against the anointed one. And now the early church in Acts 4 is seeing Psalm 2 in light of Jesus. That indeed the the kings that are rising up against the Lord, they're connecting with Herod and Pontius Pilate. It's right there in the text. That Psalm 2 is not about David ultimately, it's about Christ. He is the one who those who have risen up against him, these kings and rulers are conspiring. They conspired against the Lord. And yet, this is what's so great about the scriptures. We see that these kings are pawns in God's sovereign hand. Look at verse 28. They accomplished what your hand and your will had predestined to take place. And so as Herod and Pontius Pilate think that they're the ones who are sovereign over the death of Jesus, they're merely pawns. They're fulfilling what God was doing. See, as you go on through Psalm 2, this is where it gets so good. It says, the Lord sits in the heavens and he laughs. Isn't that so good? That as these kings and these princes and these rulers conspire, as they try to navigate their plans. The Lord just laughs. He holds them in derision. He's like, Psh, you think you got this? You're just being used by me to accomplish my greater purposes. That's your God. The one who laughs at the evil schemes of people who try to tear down. And so as you and I watch the world news, we don't have to be sitting and wringing our hands worrying that God has left his throne that he's taking a break or he's clueless as to how to run the world. The Lord, Psalm 2, sits in the heavens and laughs. He's got it. As these prideful people manipulate and conspire, as they seek to fulfill their plans and purposes, God is sovereign over it all. As they're praying the word, they're reminding the, not only themselves, but they're calling what the Lord has laid out in his word that he has accomplished his plan, which is ultimately the evil schemes of kings and rulers to accomplish the greater purpose of the gospel. 
that as they were out to kill Jesus, he ultimately, we know, gladly, willingly, joyfully goes to the cross. They're pawns in his hands for him to go and to give his life for you. That Jesus was fully aware of what was happening and these kings were just being used by God for your salvation. That indeed the death of Christ was on the heart and mind of God from eternity past so that he could ransom you. That you and I, my goodness, as broken as we are, Jesus gladly goes. He gives us life and his blood is shed for your forgiveness so that you can be made clean through him. And then God vindicated his son on the third day, raising him up from the grave. And this gospel that we rally around every day and every week as the church, that we sing together and we pray together, this is the gospel that changes everything. It changes everything about you. And so as these kings and these princes conspire against the Lord and against his anointed ones, they're just fulfilling what God had predestined so that you could come to know Christ. Oh, that you are loved by Jesus and that you would treasure him and follow him and know that God had a big plan in place so that you might come to know him through his son. The third thing I want you to see is that they petition for God's help for boldness. We see it there in verse 29. Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak the word with all boldness. The believers were acknowledging the threats of these Jewish leaders and yet they're praying, God, give us more boldness. Give us more. We want to be used by you. We want to point people to you. God, we want to leverage our lives for you. So we need your boldness. And this is what they're asking for. God, glorify your name through your people, boldly pointing people to your son. So Kenneth, what are you, what are you calling us to? What's your impact point? It's this. Pray and ask for boldness to share Jesus with coworkers, neighbors, and teammates. Oh, that you would begin to pray, God, give me a boldness to step in and have hard conversations, to be willing to be mocked and ridiculed by my coworkers, to be willing to put my promotion on the line and say, Jesus, I want people to know you more than I want to take the next step in the ladder. God, I want to be used by you to reach as many people as I can. God, would you use my brief temporary life to be bold for Christ? This is what I I, I want to invite you to today. Is would you pray and say, God, would you give me a boldness? It doesn't come from me. It comes from you. A desire to see people come to know your son. Ivan wrote home to his parents in July of 1972. My dear parents, the Lord has showed the way to me and I have decided to follow it. I will now have more severe and bigger battles than I have had until now. But I do not fear them. He goes before me. Do not grieve for me, my dear parents. It is because I love Jesus more than myself. I listen to him. And though my body does fear somewhat or does not wish to go through everything, I do this because I do not value my life as much as I value him. And I will not await my own will, but I will follow as the Lord leads. He says, go, and I go. 
For Ivan, the interrogations increased, persecutions intensified, and the beatings got worse. Within a matter of days of him riding home to his parents, he was stabbed six times in his heart and then drowned because he was bold for the Lord Jesus Christ. May I say to you, when you take a bold stand for Jesus, it's going to cost you. And yet, very much so, your boldness very well may be the means that God uses to bring people to his son. And because Jesus was willing to be bold for you, we have an opportunity to invite others to know him by us being bold for him.